Welcome to the next of the anatomy of the lower limb. This is number three for those uh, keeping score. The muscle arrangement of the thigh. Now, uh, one of the unusual aspects here that we should dispense with, I think, firstly, is the lateral iliotibial tract. The start of this superiorly relates to the tensor fasciae latae muscle, which arises close to the anterior superior alex by very near the sartorius origin, and for a small part of the tubicle of the iliac crest. And as it abuts the sartorius, it runs laterally with the rectus femoris muscle that lies or pokes its head in between. That's just below the anterior superior iliac spine. Now this muscle, uh, we'll recall, uh, that's the tensor fasciae lata, is innervated by the superior gluteal nerve, which is the posterior divisions of L4-5-S1 from the main lumbosacral plexus, the nerve crossing the buttocks to supply the muscle. Now the muscle's job there is to straighten that iliotibial tract and to support the gluteus maximus muscle in straightening the knee. And that can be an important stabilising function if the quadriceps is out of action. The muscle also acts as a strut which stabilises the hip during walking. Now the iliotibial tract is a specialised thickening of the fascia lata laterally which forms where three quarters of the gluteus maximus along with the tensor fasciae latae are inserted into it and it forms a sort of hard rim laterally passing over the lateral aspect of the knee joint and being inserted um, onto the anterior lateral surface of the tibial condyle on a smooth circular facet. You can check that out on a dried tibia. Now if the iliotibial tract is taut, it passes anterior, that's in, anteriorly, that's in front of the flexion axis. And it, uh, it's a bigger sister in straightening the knee, that is it maintains the knee in hyperextension. And even though we should understand that it's not an extensor of the flexed knee. So when it's taut, the main vastus lateralis, of course, bulges in front of it as it's attached to the lateral intermuscular septum, which runs from the iliotibial tract to the linear aspera, and which is the thing separating the vastus lateralis and the hamstrings. And that allows the iliotibial tract to function when active, like a sort of gutter which has the vastus lateralis bulging outside laterally. So this iliotibial tract then assists the quadriceps in the extension. And if you examine the quads, however, and say someone who's standing on one leg with the knee hyperextended, the quads here are actually relaxed. So this lateral muscle is important in contraction and preventing the individual from falling towards the other side so that it takes over the actions higher up of the gluteus medius and minimus too. That is, there's a prevention of over-adduction, a deduction of the hip in this stance. So it's basically a stance for anti-gravity muscle. And I think too that we can see the septum in the amputated thigh. If we look at it, that's another way of thinking of that structure. And it runs actually in the midline from the back of the linear aspera and then out laterally to separate the vastus lateralis from the long and short head of the biceps femoris. And of course running medially is the sciatic nerve. What's interesting about this muscle, originally described by Vesalius as a tibial muscle, is together with the gluteus maximus it supports stance and, if you like, a monopodal balance. Now, some have described it as a pelvic deltoid, if that's not too confusing, which allows the hip and the knee to swing. And so, too, it's also a knee stabiliser, as we can see in the front section, and it's a knee flexion and extension synergist during slight rotational movements of the knee joint. It's also a complex structure with interconnections to the femur, patella and tibia for knee stability, 
The iliopatellar band, for example, joins the iliotibial tract to the patella through an oblique retinaculum, and the capsular osseous layer of the iliotibial tract inserts laterally to the tibial, so-called Gerdes tubercle. The patellar insertion is wide and fuses to the lateral transverse and longitudinal patellar retinaculum and the lateral patellofemoral ligament complex. The capsular osseous part inserts, as I've said, into Gurney's tubercle, where it's called the lateral femorotibial ligament. So one could go into it in a lot more sort of anatomical detail. From a clinical point of view, half of the patients with acute knee injuries demonstrate some sort of injury to the iliotibial tract on magnetic resonance imaging. And iliotibial band friction syndrome is a relatively common running injury. About 15 to 24% of overuse injuries in cycling as well. So this lateral support for the knee is confirmed by the addition laterally with the biceps femoris and posterolaterally with the fibular collateral ligament, the popliteus tendon, the popliteofibular ligament, the lateral capsule, the arcuate ligament, and the fibulofibular ligament. So there are a number of complex lateral stabilizers, and all of these structures actually stabilize the knee from posterolateral rotatory instability. So the issue is a little bit more complex than we first understood. And of course, the fibular collateral ligament in this complex is the primary restraint to significant varus knee stress. We'll be going through the knee and its biomechanics in the, um, I think, the podcast after next. The arcuate ligament fibres here strengthen the lateral capsule and are secondarily supplemented by the lateral aspect of the gastrocnemius muscle. And um, I'm not an orthopaedic surgeon, but those interested in these points need to look at specific imaging for conditions which affect the iliotibial tract. And these clinically include proximal iliotibial band syndrome, the so-called Morel-Lavalle lesion, which is a degloving that separates the deep fascia of the thigh, external snapping hip syndrome, iliotibial bursitis, um, and of course iliotibial tract definitive injury and acute knee trauma, insertional tendinosis, avulsion fracture of Gerdes tubercle, things of this nature, distal lateral tibial plateau, so-called Segons fracture and the like. And there's a beautiful article on some of this by Skalski and colleagues out of Cedars-Sinai in Skeletal Radiology from 2017. I think when we get the website up and running, which I hope to do early next year, we'll be adding some of these articles available on the site so that people can access it. It's a bit easier to run it through a website. Now I think we next move on to the quadriceps muscle. The largest muscle of the body is of course the main knee extensor muscle with four parts, the rectus femoris and the three vasti, lateralis, medius and intermedius. And these converge as the quadriceps tendon containing the patella as the patellar insertion on the front of the tibia. The rectus femoris originates from two heads, from the ilium as a reflected head just above the acetabulum. There's a shallow pit which you can check out on an innominate or hip bone. And the straight head arises from the upper part of the anterior inferior iliac spine. That's the little knob below the anterior superior iliac spine. And that part is just above the large iliofemoral or bigelow's ligament of the hip joint. And this bipennate muscle, the rectus femoris, is like a big spindle. It inserts into the quadriceps tendon as an anterior lamella, and it glides by a thin membrane of fascia over the vastus intermedius, which sits behind. The lower end is covered by sartorius. The vastus lateralis runs from the intertrochanteric line and the lateral part of the linear aspera over some distance, uh, right to include the upper two-thirds 
of the lateral supracondylar lines had quite a long origin as well as, of course, from the lateral intermuscular septum, which is quite thick here, so that it's virtually in the posterior middle of the thigh. And this too has a deep fascia or sleeve over the front and back to glide on the vastus intermedius between the two muscles are, of course, the terminal aspects of the lateral circumflex femoral vessels and the associated nerve to the vastus lateralis. The vastus lateralis and the vastus intermedius can often be partly fused in people. The vastus intermedius comes from the greater trochanter and the whole of the front and the lateral surfaces of the upper two-thirds of the femur. So it's got a big bony origin from the femur, and that's because it's sitting directly against it. It leaves only the medial part of the femur, which is bare bone. And then below that, there's a small area, the so-called articularis genu muscle, which comes off the vastus intermedius or from the front of the femoral bone just below that, and it inserts into the prepatella bursa, and it prevents its nipping during knee extension. The vastus medialis comes from the spiral line and the medial lip of the linear aspera, and according to Cunningham, over the whole of the medial aspect of the femur here is a kind of thin line of origin. And it slopes across the medial femur surface. It lies on the vastus intermedius below and against the rectus femoris lower down. The most inferior fibres run uh, in vastus medialis almost horizontally, directly into the medial aspect of the patella. And they're integral in the prevention of patellofemoral instability and dislocation. And I'll be talking about that in the next podcast. This muscle, vastus medialis, also has an origin from the medial intermuscular septum, which is far less formed because there's not really that separation between the adductor muscles and the quadriceps, uh, or the, uh, let's say in the hamstrings, uh, uh, in that uh, particular way. And um, some slips, of course, from the vastus medialis may actually come from an attachment to the adductor longus and the adductor magnus muscles. That's not an uncommon finding. And some of the lowermost fibres also run into the medial capsule of the knee joint. Now, all of this forms the quadriceps tendon, which is trilaminar, with the vastus lateralis lying between the rectus femoris and the vastus intermedius, with a patella ligament connecting the lower border of the patella with the tibial tuberosity, and with extensive patella retinacular, which connect the sides of the patella to the tibial condyles. The nerve supply of the quads is, of course, by separate branches of the femoral nerve. And, of course, this is the main knee extensor. It's a propulsive muscle in walking with the rectus femoris that assists hip stabilisation and assists with the iliopsoas in hip flexion. So it's a kind of little hybrid muscle, that rectus femoris. Don't forget that one of the nerves from the rectus femoris innervates the hip and that the vastus medialis nerve innervates from the adductor canal, the knee joint. A couple of other things we should mention. The adductor canal, of course, this is the so-called subsatorial or so-called hunterian canal. And it has to do with John Hunter really ligating the femoral artery here above a main collateral as a treatment for popliteal aneurysm, which was a disease of coachman and which was usually treated in the 18th century by major amputation. If you actually go to the Hunterian Museum in London, you can see one of his ligation cases, which was retrieved uh, about six years after the procedure was performed when the patient died. He was informed about it and the patient was sent back to him for immediate post-mortem. Now, the Hunterian or subsatorial canal or adductor canal is a kind of gutter-shaped groove between the uh, vastus medialis and the adductors below the femoral triangle, which we've already discussed. And above, of course, is the so-called subsatorial plexus, which contains the femoral artery and vein, the saphenous nerve, as well as here the nerve to vastus medialis already mentioned. The floor is formed by the adductor longus and below by the adductor magnus. And the little loose subsatorial plexus, as it's called, has small communications with the intermediate femoral cutaneous nerve, 
the saphenous nerve, which is the continuation of the femoral nerve, and little twigs also from the anterior division of the obturator nerve, which runs uh, in front of the abductor uh, brevis. The irritation higher up of that particular nerve, for example, in a strangulated obturator hernia, that's the anterior division of the obturator nerve running in front of the abductor brevis, you can get an irritation of that nerve when you have a strangulated obturator hernia, and that refers to pain which is referring down to the knee as a presentation of a strangulated obturator hernia, the so-called Hauschip-Romberg sign. And I must say I've seen this quite a few times. Um, this little plexus supplies the fascia lata over it and the medial thigh. The adductor canal, of course, transmits the popliteal vessels through a defect in the adductor magnus. The femoral vein runs posterolaterally lower down. It's, of course, medial upstream. Part of the lower limb bud rotation, as we know, is occurring in fetal life creates this odd orientation. There's a small infrapatellar branch here that contributes medially to a patellar plexus linked to the main saphenous nerve. And the nerve runs with a small branch of the femoral artery called the descending genicular artery, and it becomes ultimately the saphenous artery and a muscular branch to the vastus medialis, of course, as we've said already forms there with a little knee and astomotic network. This descending genicular artery is often referred to in, in some anatomical textbooks as the Arteria anastomotica magna, that its muscular branch anastomoses with the medial genicular artery and uh, an artery coming from the so-called anterior recurrent tibial artery. Um, there's also a superficial connection to the lateral genicular artery, but we'll considering the next podcast, the anastomotic network around the knee. So we've covered really the front of the thigh, we're then onto the medial compartment of the thigh. And because of the nature of the muscle interposition here, there is a formed medial intermuscular septum between the adductor compartment and the quadriceps compartment, but there's no such separation between the adductors and the hamstring compartment. So this medial compartment includes the gracilis muscle, of course, the three adductors, the adductor brevis, the adductor longus, and the adductor magnus, and the deep muscle covering the obturator membrane, which we often forget, and the foramen, which is rightly, I think, called the obturator externus muscle. The nerve of the compartment is the obturator nerve, and that's part of the anterior division of the lumbar plexus, L234. The artery is the profund, the femoris artery, and it's supplemented to some extent by the obturator artery, which can have some anomalous variations. Remember, the femoral nerve with the same lumbar plexus nerve roots as the obturator nerve is the posterior divisions of those roots, and the arterial anastomosis is between the femoral artery and a branch of the internal iliac artery, as we've said, the obturator. The medial intermuscular septum is an extension of the fascia lata. It continues over the pectineus to the pectineus or as the pectineus fascia and then passes lower down over the adductor longus and the adductor magnus. And here is actually quite thin with an attachment to the linear aspera, rather sort of a realer in type, whereas laterally, as I've said, the lateral intermuscular septum is quite dense and thick. And so I'm trying to re- uh, impose this information, uh, reiterate this information in order to just kind of reinforce it. Now, of the muscles, the gracilis takes origin as the most superficial medial muscle, taking origin from a small area on the inferior pubic ramus. You can have a look at that if you've got an innominate bone. And it lies alongside the origin of the adductor brevis and below a small area which originates or which is the, the origin of the adductor longus. The pyramidalis muscle, if that's present, is also attached at this point near the gracilis. So there's a rather crowded muscle origin medially. The gracilis comes out, thins out into a tendon, which is inserted into the front of the tibia, just below the medial tibial condyle, and that's in front of the semitendinosus and behind the sartorius, 
and they're separated by a little bursa, the so-called bursa serena or goose's foot. And these, as I've said already in another podcast, are the three sort of main vestigial almost guy ropes of these compartments. Sartorius in front, which is innervated by the femoral nerve, the gracilis next, which is innervated by the obturator nerve, and the semitendinosus next, which is innervated by the sciatic or ischiatic nerve. The adductor longus <coughs> has a similar, slightly more lateral origin, it's the most superficial of the adductors. It's squeezed below the area between the pubic symphysis and the pubic crest, so just below that area, and just uh, above the grassless origin. It's a strong round origin, the so-called rider's muscle. That's also the muscle that goes in footballers with groin injuries. It's a fleshy and flat muscle. It's inserted into the middle third of the linear aspera. And the adductor longus separates the femoral and the profunda femoris vessels. The adductor brevis has a similar lateral attachment to the gracilis in tandem, deep to the pectineus, and the adductor longus is quite therefore a deep muscle, and it's inserted above um, the adductor brevis uh, area on the linear and below the pectineus. Uh, I'm sorry, it's inserted above the adductor longus area on the linear and below the pectineus insertion so that all of these muscles are actually squeezed into this attachment. And the value here in the dissection is that if you remove the pectineus and the adductor longus, you'll see the anterior division of the obturator nerve running on the surface of the adductor, uh, the adductor brevis muscle. The posterior division runs behind it. So the nerve splits around that in the same way that the femoral and uh, profound, the femoris split around the adductor longus. So some have told me that they're dissecting as they're listening to these tapes, and this is one point to stop it and see if you can find by taking the adductor longus off and the pectineus, this adductor brevis muscle with its obturator nerve running on front. The final area or muscle to consider is the adductor magnus, and that's the more complex of these muscles. It's actually a sort of composite muscle with a hamstring part and an adductor part. And the hamstring part arises from the ridge over the lateral ischial tuberosity. You can check that out on an innominate bone. And then it runs down to insert into the adductor tubercle. The adductor part has an attachment more on the ischiopubic ramus progressively. It's inserted above the tubercle to the supracondylar line and along the linear aspera as far up as the gluteal tuberosity. It's sort of squeezed between the adductor longus and the adductor brevis. And if you look at the back of the thigh, this muscle lies just under the quadratus femoris if you've got access to a presected specimen um, or to a plastinate. So that just under the quadratus femoris is the origin of the adductor magnus and it has the medial circumflex femoral artery running in that small gap between the two muscles, and that's actually the medial transverse arm of the so-called cruciate anastomosis. There's a natural defect, as we said before, in the adductor magnus, which is the hunterian canal, or the adductor canal, for the transmission of the femoral vessels. And these are natural defects uh, also, or there are also natural defects, for the perforating femoral vessels. Now, the nerve supply of the adductors, as we've already said, includes the anterior division of the obturator nerve, which innervates the gracilis and the adductor longus and the adductor brevis, with the sciatic nerve innervating also the adductor magnus, along with the posterior division of the obturator nerve. I'll come back into that shortly. Um, Deeply, we shouldn't forget the obturator externus, which attaches um, to the obturator membrane and some bony window around this, avoiding superiorly, of course, the obturator notch for the passage of the obturator neurovascular bundle. And this muscle runs around the neck of the femur posteriorly to insert into the medial greater trochanter into a pit which is called the trochanteric fossa. 
and it too is innervated by the posterior division of the obturator nerve L3-4. And if you think about it, it's of course one of the group of short lateral rotators of the hip, if you can imagine it contracting and pulling the hip towards its origin point. Now, this area begs the discussion a little bit, I think, of the obturator nerve and the obturator artery. And so I'll briefly go into that. The artery is a branch of the anterior division of the internal iliac. And uh, it has a medial and lateral branch, which forms a kind of circular anastomotic ring in the substance of the obturator externus, and which attaches to the medial circumflex femoral artery. There's a small branch from the lateral branch of this obturator artery, which goes back into the ligamentum teres to the hip joint, and that typically obliterates in teens, um, and that's important to the blood supply to the head of the femur. Because there's a poor supply here, there's an increased risk, obviously, of avascular necrosis of the hip in anyone who has a, a fractured neck of femur. And that's compounded in the hip because the fracture in a neck of femur fracture is entirely intracapsular in most cases, so that all of the little retinacular vessels, which we briefly mentioned, running up in the capsule anteriorly and posteriorly, if they're not already broken uh, themselves by, and occluded by um, uh, an intracapsular neck of femur fracture, then they are tamponaded and squeezed shut because there's a very tense hemarthrosis. And all of those factors then lead to a much higher risk of avascular necrosis of the head of the femur with a fractured neck. And that's a very important point. I'll go over it again in the next podcast. Now, the obturator nerve divides into an anterior and a posterior branch, as I've said, at the level of the obturator notch, so relatively high up. The anterior branch passes in front of the obturator externus, and the posterior branch passes through the obturator externus, which it supplies. The anterior branch is a mixed nerve, and it sends a branch back to the hip joint, and then running under the adductor longus, but over the adductor brevis, it supplies both and the gracilis. Now, there's a connection um, there, as I've said, because it's a mixed nerve uh, into the cutaneous branches over the medial thigh and knee from the subsartorial plexus, which we've already mentioned. The posterior division runs behind the adductor brevis on the adductor magnus, and it supplies the adductor magnus with a branch running down with the middle genicular artery to supply the knee joint, so that that follows Hilton's law as we've previously um, defined it. That is, that the motor branch to a muscle also gives a branch of supply to the joint the muscle moves, and also a cutaneous twig to the skin over the joint. All right. Now we have to turn the limb over, if you have a prosected specimen, to see the gluteal region behind the hip joint. And uh, as I said before, I know that some of you are looking at prosected specimens as you're listening to this, so it's a very useful way of studying and reinforcing, like running a, a recipe. But you can understand the 3D orientation of the anatomy, I think, uh, by listening to this as you're then correlating with what you're finding in a specimen. Uh, so I think I've uh, heard that this is particularly a useful way of reinforcing it. Now, I also know that we'll discuss the obturator internus muscle, which will appear in much greater detail when we consider the anatomy of the pelvis. But I can warn you, or at least let you know, that that will not appear until the end of next year in this course of lectures. So the next area that we're interested in is the gluteal region. Now, we're looking at the gluteal fold, and it's important here to understand how the nerves and vessels get out of the pelvis into the buttock and the lower limb, that is, via the greater sciatic foramen. So you have to understand also the bony anatomy of the innominatal hip bone and the sacrum, and that's part of a separate podcast. The role of foramen in the body is, of course, to transmit nerves and vessels, uh, in this case from the pelvis, the lumbosacral plexus, and then down into the buttock and the lower limb. The muscles here of the buttock 
are the three gluteals, the gluteus maximus, the gluteus medius, and the gluteus minimus, and the landmark muscle, the piriformis, which will also meet in the pelvis, the obturator internus, and its gemelli, and the quadratus femoris. And we'll also meet the two important ligaments which convert these notches, the greater and lesser sciatic notches, into foramenae, the greater and lesser sciatic foramenae. So we'll briefly assess here the sacrotubris and sacrospinous ligaments, but that's more part of the discussion of the pelvis. So let's get on to the muscles here. Um, the gluteus maximus is the biggest and the most superficial of the gluteal muscles running down to the thigh below the buttock skin crease. The buttock skin crease is the line of the hip joint. And if you look at an ilium, you'll see, uh, or an ilium, depending on how you pronounce it, you'll see a large flat gluteal surface against the posterior iliac spine territory. And that is, of course, the posterior gluteal line. But there's not only attachment here, but also some attachment of the gluteus maximus from the lumbar fascia, as well as from the lateral mass of the sacrum below where it articulates, that is, below the sacroiliac joint, and also in part from the substance of the sacrotuberous ligament, which is an important landmark. So this muscle actually overlaps the posterior gluteal line, but also the sacroiliac connection, the sacrotuberous ligament, the back of the lateral path, the so-called mass of the sacrum, and its fasciae. The deep part of the muscle sits behind the greater trochanter, and it inserts into the gluteal tuberosity of the femur. The rest of the muscle, that's the majority of it, is actually surrounded, as I've already said, it's enveloped in fascia lata on both sides, and with the other encircled muscle, the tensor fasciae latae, they're both inserted into the iliotibial tract in the way we've already defined it. The muscle's so large that it has several main bursi, one lying over the ischial tuberosity where we sit, and one over the hamstring origin, and one over the lateral greater trochanter, and one over the upper sliding vastus lateralis muscle. If you split this muscle and lift it up and reflect it laterally, you can see the superior gluteal vessels, the arteries, and sometimes alicia veins running above the piriformis muscle. And from below that muscle, you'll see the inferior gluteal vessels supplying all of this muscle and the skin over it. Now, don't be fooled here. The nerve of innervation of the gluteus maximus isn't the superior gluteal nerve. It's the inferior gluteal nerve, which is the posterior divisions of L5, S1 and S2. And I will go through the sacral lumbosacral plexus in another podcast um, the gluteus maximus is the only muscle innervated by the inferior gluteal nerve. And when we come to see the pelvis sagittally split, we'll trace out the superior gluteal vessels out through the greater sciatic foramen and above the piriformis muscle and then turn the specimen over and look at it in the posterior gluteal space. Now the muscle there, the gluteus maximus, is there to extend the hip joint but also to laterally rotate it. And as part of that iliotibial tract, as I've said before, it helps stabilise the limb and extend the knee. It is a muscle of stance, a stance muscle. If one stands with the hip and knee flexed, it contracts so that, as last says, it's an anti-gravity muscle, in effect. And the action to extend the hip comes, of course, into play in running, in climbing, in getting upstairs, but also in simple walking, this activity is more largely taken over by the hamstrings. Now we've reflected this muscle and we're then onto the gluteus medius. To see that muscle, the gluteus maximus must be removed or reflected. And you look at it in nominate bone again and the muscle arises from that posterior gluteal surface but between the so-called posterior and middle gluteal lines. And these are well demarcated on the bone with a high, wide, flat origin surface. The gluteus medius is a triangular, fan-shaped muscle that inserts by a stout tendon into the outer part of the upper greater trochanter. 
and that attachment can extend across to the iliofemoral ligament and supporting it and the hip capsule. And there's usually a bursa here at the point of separation. If we include a little comment on the gluteus minimus, this muscle is underneath the gluteus medius and it arises from the gluteal surface of the ilium, but now between the middle and the inferior gluteal lines. And you can check that out on the bone. And this runs down to a more J-shaped insertion on the greater trochanter, also again separated by a bursa. So you've got the medius and minimus lying alongside each other from origin down to insertion. Now both of those muscles, the medius and minimus, are innervated by the superior gluteal nerve. That's the posterior divisions of L45S1. So it's higher than the inferior gluteal nerve, L5S12. And these muscles, of course, are hip abductors too, but they're really operative when standing on one leg and they assist in pelvic stability, particularly during walking. These muscles, of course, can waste with any hip disease and they can create that kind of Trendelenburg gait when there's a waddle, which is there to shift the centre of gravity over the midline in a kind of exaggerated fashion. And it's also part of the so-called Trendelenburg test, where you get the person to stand on one leg, which is defined as the ipsilateral leg, and in normal circumstances the muscles here contract, and they pull the ipsilateral hip downwards a little bit, and the contralateral hip might rise slightly, but when the glutei are actually wasted, there's a contralateral pelvic drop. So that in order to take over the function of these muscles which don't contract, you've got to tilt the hip to that side. So there's a kind of waddling gait. So they're a feature really of um, atrophy of the gluteus medius and minimus. Now, importantly, the superior gluteal nerve, again to reiterate, I, I thought, although I'll cover it when we separately discuss the lumbosacral plexus, that comes out of the greater sciatic foramen above the piriformis, and then it runs between the medius and minimus, which it innervates, and then it sinks into the substance of the tensor fasciae latae. Note, please, that it has no cutaneous element at all. It doesn't innervate skin. It does not innervate the skin of the buttock in particular. And I'll cover that at the end of this podcast because the cutaneous innovation of the buttock is a little bit complicated. But suffice to say that it isn't the superior gluteal nerve. The superior gluteal artery, on the other hand, does supply the skin. And there's a large superficial branch of that artery which sinks into the maximus with the deep branch running between the medius and minimus and that divides into an upper and a lower branch. The upper branch of that, you'll recall, is part of the anastomosis around the anterior superior iliac spine, and the lower branch of this is part of the so-called trochanteric anastomosis, and I'll get into that just towards the end of the podcast. We continue with the muscles, and we're going to mention briefly here the gluteal aspects of piriformis. We'll encounter this muscle again when we talk about the pelvic sidewalls, but for now we see it in the depths of the gluteal region. Its origin is pelvic and it surrounds the first three sacral foramina. As it passes through the greater sciatic foramen, it actually sort of stuffs through the greater sciatic foramen, it also attaches to a bit of the upper edge of the greater sciatic notch. But it's filling that foramen and running directly out of the pelvis, inserted into the posterior apex of the greater trochanter between the insertion of the medius and below the so-called superior gemellus part of the tricipital tendon. I'll explain what I mean by that shortly. This area all converges, if you like, onto the greater trochanter. And if you draw a line between the posterior superior iliac spine and the tip of the coccyx, and midway run this line out to the greater trochanter, that's the sort of surface marking of the piriformis because the sciatic nerve runs just under there. The muscle piriformis is innervated by just some local branches of the sacral plexus, usually S1 and S2, as they emerge from the sacral foramina, so that they're right there uh, uh, behind the fascia. Now, it's a short external rotator or lateral rotator, one of the short muscles, 
and it stabilizes the abducted hip. But it, rather than its kind of function, it is a landmark muscle. The superior gluteal vessels and nerve run in the supraperiformis locale, if you like. And below is the inferior gluteal nerve and vessels, as well as the pudendal nerve, the internal pudendal vessels, the nerve to obturator internus, the sciatic nerve itself, and then more superficially, the large intervening posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, what we used to call the posterior cutaneous nerve of thigh. Now, importantly, the inferior gluteal artery is the axial vessel of the lower limb, which has muscular branches, but which also forms part of the trochanteric and cruciate anastomoses, and I'll explain those shortly. The inferior gluteal artery is the companion, or a branch of it, the companion artery of the sciatic nerve, um, which we call the so-called arteria comitans nervi ischiadicia. I like that uh, particular term, but that's its official name. And you always see that little artery at an above-knee amputation. Um, I think equally one briefly sees the pudendal nerve at this uh, point as well, running over the ischial spine and the sacrospinous ligament to get into the less societic foramen and then become the nerve of the perineum. And it's accompanied by the internal pudendal artery lateral to the nerve, and that's the artery of the perineal compartment. So we'll hear a lot more about this vessel when we consider the anatomy of the perineum next year. But it continues as the perineal artery, the inferior rectal artery, uh, and also uh, is important uh, for posterior scrotal or labial vessels, um, penile vessels, including the artery of the bulb, the deep artery, and the dorsal artery. Now, the next muscle is the obturator internus and the superior and inferior gemellus or gemelli. We'll certainly meet this muscle again in the pelvic sidewalls, but suffice to say that it arises from the inside of the obturator membrane, hence obturator internus, like the obturator externus. But if you look at the inner aspect of this bone, you're near the so-called iliopectineal or iliopubic eminence of the ilium, and the muscle can have quite an extensive origin here over the bone. So it's much more than the membrane. The origin of obturator internus is quite wide. And that's because the muscle, which is covered by a specialised fascia, the obturator fascia, does give rise here to the levator ani muscle. But that's for a later time. At any rate, the obturator internus stuffs the lesser sciatic foramen. But once it's outside in the buttock, in order to attach to the inner aspect of the greater trochanter, just above the trochanteric fossa, it has to pass backwards, almost precisely at a right angle, coming out of the pelvis and then running back into the thigh and buttock. And you can confirm that by putting your finger around the, in, uh, the lesser sciatic notch and seeing how, if the femur is articulated to the innominate bone, this would have to then take a right angle to run backwards. And as it passes back here, it's joined above and below by muscles that have a requisite small origin around the lesser sciatic notch, the superior and the inferior gemellus, which then attaches as a so-called tricipital or three-headed tendon. It's quite tendinous. Actually, the superior gemellus originates from the ischial spine, and the nerve here is then to the obturator internus and the superior gemellus. That is the nerve to the obturator internus. Whereas the inferior gemellus arises also from the ischial tuberosity near the margin of the lesser sciatic notch, and that's innervated by the nerve to quadratus femoris. So the nerve to obturator internus also innervates the superior gemellus. The nerve to quadratus femoris also innervates the inferior gemellus. And the gemelli don't get an extra name, sort of like nerve to superior or nerve to inferior gemellus. It's a little bit um, like the mylohyoid nerve, when we remember from the head and neck, which is the nerve to mylohyoid, also innervates the anterior belly of digastric, but it doesn't get an extra... Guernsey, as we say, it doesn't get an extra name. So this tricipital tendon of the obturator internus and the gemelli is squeezed under the piriformis, 
and above the quadratus femoris, and it has the sciatic nerve uh, running on it. The pudendal neurovascular bundle entering the perineum here, we'll discuss this another time, runs along this ischial ridge, and there's a special little canal there for it, which is called the pudendal or Alcox canal. Uh, we're left with the quadratus femoris, and that's a rectangular muscle, very nicely named, which comes from the ischial tuberosity. So we're getting progressively lower and lower in origin, and it inserts into the quadrate tubicle, which you can see on the back of the femur if you have one. That's just really a heaped-up increase in bone of the epiphysis of the greater trochanter. And in that sense, it's a little similar in its formation to the iliopubic eminence of the ilium. Below, of course, the quadratus femoris is the beginning edge of the adductor magnus muscle. And the nerve supply, as I've said, is the nerve to quadratus femoris, which is L45S1, posterior divisions. Although these muscles stabilise the hip, they're all lateral rotators or short rotators of the hip, as I've said. The nerve to obturator internus of the superior gemellus actually has lower nerve roots. It's L5S12. And so that's a bit unusual as well, that the nerve supply to quadratus femoris and inferior gemellus has a higher nerve root origin than the nerve of obturator internus and the superior gemellus. So that's a little bit odd. And perhaps somebody can let me know exactly precisely why that is, because I would like to find out. Um, I'll add a few little caveats at the end. There are a few specific thigh vascular anastomoses and some comments on the nerve and blood supply to the skin of the buttock region, the latter being, as I've said, a little bit complex. Firstly, there's a trochanteric anastomosis near the trochanteric fossa, which contributes to the retinacular vessels I've already briefly mentioned on the capsule of the hip joint, and which are critical in blood supply to the head of the femur. So this trochanteric anastomosis is contributed to by a deep descending branch of the superior gluteal artery we've already mentioned, the ascending branches of both the medial and the lateral circumflex femoral arteries, and a branch of that axial inferior gluteal artery. That's quite distinct from the so-called cruciate anastomosis, which forms at the lower margin of the quadratus femoris, as the transverse branch of the medial circumflex femoral, the transverse branch of the lateral circumflex femoral, a branch of the inferior gluteal which descends, and a rising branch of the first perforator. So it forms a nice cross or cruciate anastomosis. And that's more at the level as a cross anastomosis about the level of the lesser trochanter. We, of course, remember the other anastomosis around the anterior superior iliac spine, between the superficial circumflex iliac, a branch of the femoral, the deep circumflex iliac, a branch of the external iliac, the ascending deep branch of the superior gluteal, which is a branch of the internal iliac, and a component of the iliolumbar artery, a posterior branch of the internal iliac. So that's there already as a pre-existent collateral network already in place if there is an external iliac occlusion. The final point we want to make is the blood and nerve supply to the buttock. And blood comes from perforators of the superior and inferior gluteal arteries. No problem there. Of course, the superior and inferior gluteal nerves have no cutaneous component. The nerve supply from this area comes from the posterior rami of the upper three lumbar nerves, and that extends over the upper posterior skin of the buttock. Two the posterior rami of all the sacral nerves, the upper three innervating the skin of the natal cleft, that's the pilonidal sinus territory, and the lower two along with the distinct coccygeal nerve innervating that small but sensitive area of skin over the coccyx and its tip. And this communicates with the L5 spinal nerve that's distinct from the ventral coccygeal plexus which forms something else, the anococcygeal nerve, and the postural innovation of the sacrotuberous ligament. These nerves here, by the way, the posterior rami of those little sacral nerves are often referred to as the middle clunial nerve, C-L-U-N-E-A-L. Three, the anterior rami have distinctly and widely separate origins. The 
subcostal nerve and the iliohypogastric nerves are modified intercostal pattern nerves and these have big lateral cutaneous branches that reach out into the upper lateral aspect of the buttock. The lateral cutaneous branch of both of these nerves innervates that lateral aspect high up and in front but you can see how low these nerves go. So the T12L1 is the subcostal nerve which has made its way out from the chest below the lateral arcuate ligament and the iliohypogastric nerve, which is L1, has run across the front of the quadratus lumborum. And these are all structures we'll meet in the thoracic and abdominal wall podcasts, but that's some way off. Nevertheless, you can look them up now and bear in mind the little point I've made concerning buttock sensation, just sort of file it away. And all of this needs, therefore, to be integrated. When I speak of these nerves again, I'll back refer you to this ALL episode. Four, at the lower part of the lateral buttock, there's a small representation of the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, and that comes from L2-3, but it's part of the lumbar plexus, part of the posterior divisions of that plexus, and in truth I don't worry too much about this contribution, as in most cases it's more a little bit below the lateral buttock. Five, the perforating cutaneous nerve does come in here. It's one of the six branches from the sacral plexus, as S23 in this case, and it perforates the sacral tuberous ligament, hence its name. It innervates the postero-inferior part of the buttock in the area where the two buttocks are just sort of losing contact. And the nerve runs at the posterior edge of the ischioanal, or in the old parlance, the ischiorectal fossa, and it passes over the lower edge of the gluteus maximus. That little nerve can have a variation. It can be absent, or it can be replaced by a branch of the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, stay tuned, or a branch of the pudendal nerve, or even separately lower down from a branch of either S3-4 or S4-5. Um, six, we've got the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, what used to be called the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh, and it covers the lower part of the back of the buttock, probably it's the largest swathe of it, and it's a, ref um, a reflected nerve, if you like, so that it's uh, reflected uh, back um, onto the uh, region of the buttock. It's an unusual nerve of the sacral plexus since it's a composite makeup of the anterior and posterior divisions of S1, 2, 3, and usually it's described as the dorsal divisions of S1 and 2 and the ventral divisions of S2, 3, so it's an unusual composite nerve. But it exits the pelvis distal to the piriformis. It's superficial to supply most of the back of the thigh and it extends down to the mid or even lower calf level. Now, it's one of those big structures that runs out the gradocytic foramen with the inferior gluteal artery, but it's separated away by that from the sciatic nerve. But interestingly, it lies deep to the fascia lata, so it's very uncommonly injured. Um, and it's well protected for the large skin area that it innervates. I like to think of it in that way. It runs over the long head of the biceps femoris to the back of the knee, and it's only here that it pierces the deep fascia to accompany the short saphenous vein. There may be some connections here also with the sural nerve. It's an entirely cutaneous nerve, the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, with branches that reflect back to the buttock, and these uh, are the so-called inferior clunial nerves, usually three or four in number. The perineal branches are distributed to the skin of the upper and medial thigh and down the thigh and the leg. There are numerous filaments which come from both sides of the main nerve and they innervate the thigh and the leg and the popliteal fossa. By the way, clunial, uh, which isn't used much these days, comes from the Latin clunis, meaning rump or buttock, and it can be spelt for pedants, uh, either as C-L-U-N-E-A-L or C-L-U-N-I-A-L. So from all of this, in the way that we can see, the lower limb bud forming, the area in the buttock and the perineum, for that matter, is missing representation of the L2 to S2 dermatomes. And that's, of course, the innovation of the lower limb. 
and this dermatomal arrangement of the lower limb is further accentuated by the medial rotation of the limb, which we've spoken about before, which forces the anterior axial line to spiral from the root of the penis or the clitoris across the front of the scrotum or labia majus and then to the back of the thigh and calf. So here the anterior axial line is actually very posteromedially located. It's badly named in a way, uh, but it's more posteromedial than you would think it should be. And that line, of course, is the line of junction of two dermatomes that are then innovated from discontinuous spinal level since the remainder has moved on to the limb. And the situation in the upper limb is, of course, the anterior axial line is where you think it should be, on the front of the limb, about halfway in the middle. What's also different here about the lower limb is that there's far much more skin that is borrowed from the trunk than is borrowed from the neck in the upper limb. Uh, there's cranial borrowing from the trunk as T12, L1, L2, L3, as I've mentioned already, coming down from the subcostal nerve. So those are some of the differences, again, as we're continuing to look at the sort of embryological and homological development of the limb. Okay, so we're done here. Um, I'd remind people if they can contribute to our um, ongoing podcast, they can find it at patron.podbean.com slash anatopod, and that's on the um, site. The next podcast we're going to do is on the hip and the innominate bone. And um, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.